Our scripture for exposition today is Psalm 119, the whole of Psalm 119. But we'll only read three sections. Psalm 119 is obviously organized according to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the Aleph Bet. Our own alphabet is based on the same order of letters as well, A, B, C, Aleph Bet. <clears throat> let's read three sections. First, let's read Gimel, which begins in verse 17. God's Word, Psalm 119, beginning in verse 17. <clears throat> Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Turning to page to 81, 81, section Kaf, Kaf, verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. And finally, 161, sheen. 161, which is also seen, one letter. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Thus far, the reading in God's holy word. Dear congregation, well loved by our Lord Jesus Christ, the Psalms are a gift to you from your loving Lord. Jesus said to his followers after his resurrection in Luke 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is using shorthand here to talk about the three sections of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. The Jews call the Tanakh, 
First is the Torah, the law, right? The Pentateuch, the law of Moses. Then comes the Nevi'im, the prophets. Then comes the Ketuvim, or the writings. TNC, Tanakh, the three sections of the Old Testament. The Psalms is the most outstanding part of the writings. And so Jesus refers to that section as the Psalms. The Psalms point to our Lord Jesus Christ in many places in direct prophecy. But the main way they show us the Lord Jesus is they set up expectations and patterns that he and ultimately he alone can fulfill. The Psalms lead us to Jesus. And because of that, it's through these Psalms that you can find a meaningful life. It's through these Psalms that you can find some sense of stability in the craziness of our lives today, and that you can find some comfort in the middle of the distresses that you're facing at this point in your life. Psalm 119 is a big invitation. It's an invitation for you to enter in and to experience God in the same way that the psalmist has found help and hope in God. There's an invitation for you, if you will pay attention, to find joy. So I invite you to attend with me this morning on Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a poem. I dare say poetry has fallen on hard times in our culture. I won't ask for a raising of hands, but anybody has anyone read poetry in the last three weeks? Our modern culture, modern American culture, has poetry has gone down. But in the ancient world, if something was worth remembering, it was worth putting into poetry. Poetry was very prized. In our own Anglo-Saxon culture, the earliest English uh, literature is in poetry, like Beowulf, for example. We go back to the Romans, the Aeneid, in poetry. We go back to the Greeks before that, the Iliad, the Odyssey. We go back before that, even before the Bible, the Gilgamesh epic from Mesopotamia. Poetry, poetry, right? And you may say, oh, that sounds so stilted. This is a very, st- this is a very structured poem. How is this poem structured? It's an acrostic, right? A, B, C. So each of the first eight lines is with the letter alpha. Then the next eight lines is with the letter bet, etc., etc. This is actually, uh, you might be surprised to know, this is actually a common way of structuring poetry in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 9, 10, 25, Psalm 34, 37. These are all acrostics. Psalm 111, Psalm 112, 145, Proverbs 31 on the capable woman is an acrostic. Much of uh, uh, Lamentations is an acrostic as well. Now you may say, well, poet, isn't that rather restricting? Well, think of it maybe like a garden hose. The more you crank down on the garden hose, the farther it goes, right? That structure, as with a, a, a love sonnet or maybe a haiku, the structure itself enables something to be expressed with greater emotional impact. And that's what we have here uh, in the Psalms. We have it actually about a half, less, slightly less than half of the Old Testament is written in poetry. The, the, uh, the, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, these are, they write in poetry uh, as well. There's a lot of feeling here. But that does explain why these sections are not as, they're not as logically connected as you might find with Paul's writings. Paul's writings is very, very logically uh, connected. And, and that's why there's some jumping around in uh, each of the sections here. Um, 
<clears throat> You'll also notice that there are certain uh, there are certain words that repeat themselves in each of the sections. So, for example, in the, the tzade section, you won't be surprised to know that words that start with like tzadik, which means righteous, or tzedakah, which means righteousness, or tzadak, which means to justify, those words appear a lot in that section. So we won't go into the little details. But when you come to the end of this, poet, this poem, what, what's the impression that it gives you? It's like everything that can be said about the Word of God has been said. No stone has been left unturned. We've looked at it uh, from every point of view. And it is ravishing. The psalmist is just delighting in the Word of God and how beautiful it is. And he's inviting us to join with him in his delight. My suspicion is that there's eight lines in each of these sections because the psalmist is using eight expressions to talk about the Word of God. He talks about the commandments, the testimonies, the precepts, the statutes, the rules, the judgments, and the words. But is he talking about eight different things? He's talking about one thing. He's talking about this wonderful book, which we call the Old Testament. Now, in our Sunday school presentation, I I do hope you'll be able to stay for our Sunday school presentation, we'll be talking about how uh, there are churches, many churches throughout the world, there are whole denominations in Latin America, in Africa, and throughout the world that are longing for the Old Testament. They have the New Testament, but they don't have the Old Testament. And they're longing for the Psalms in Isaiah. This is what our psalmist is celebrating. He's celebrating the Old Testament. And if he can say this about the Old Testament, Christian soul, how much more can you rejoice in the Bible as a whole, having now the New Testament with its greater clarity? Praise the Lord for that. Obviously, it's a fool's errand, as it were, to preach on the whole of Psalm 119, but I want to see if we can start our way up this mountain at least a little bit, and I want us to pluck a few strings from this beautiful harp, both the minor key and the major key as well. I'd like to consider this uh, word, his appreciation for the, the word of Yahweh under five headings, and in each case, we'll listen to the minor chord, which is the troubles the difficulties behind uh, his experience, and then the major chord being his delights and what he appreciates for the benefits that he finds in the word of the Lord. So I encourage you, please keep your Bible open. I won't even be quoting full full verses, but please follow me. There's a lot lot from the... I'll, I'll make a lot of quotes from the text here. The first thing that we see from this psalm is this promise, and we'll have five promises here. The first promise is light for our darkness. First of all, light for our darkness. The most famous verse in this psalm is 105. And uh, Amy Grant, if you're a little older, you may remember that beautiful Amy Grant uh, song, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We read in 160, The sum of your word is truth. Today we come to Reformation Sunday. We think about those solas of the Reformation, that it's only by grace that we're saved through Christ alone, we come to the idea that it's sola scriptura, that the word of God alone is authoritative for uh, what is to be taught and what is to believe in the Christian Christian church. And in this teaching, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, we have the beginnings of that doctrine of sola scriptura. We have in the scriptures the lodestone for truth. We have 
you can tell if a, if a teaching, if a philosophy or a value system is true by comparing it with what we have in the scriptures. This is the norm of norms. If the scripture affirms it, then it is true. Uh, otherwise, if not, then we know that it's, it's false. So if you want to be wise and understanding, you need this word. We read in uh, 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. 104, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. <coughs> now, of course, we live in an age that no longer believes in false ways. Every way is true. We live in a relativistic age. We live in a cynical age. We don't believe in truth or transcendent values anymore. We sowed the wind and we reaped the whirlwind. The Enlightenment taught us you have to look inside yourself. It's human beings themselves who have to determine what is true. And then after 200 years, in, now in the postmodern period, we realize there's, that's, that's a false, you can't get to an objective truth that way. And so we've given up as a culture, largely. We've become cynical, relativistic, and we no longer believe that there are truths and that there are values that are, uh, that are universal, as people have believed Christian and non-Christian from the beginning of human history. But if you want wisdom, it's like in the Proverbs. Wisdom calls and says, come to me. This is where you have to, to find it. We read in 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. This is not just for you if you have a PhD. This is for you if you're a child. If you want light and understanding, this is the place to get it. We read in 99, I have under, more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Surely you'll understand more about the, the nature of reality and the world than your secular university teachers if you believe the word of God, if you, if you trust what God says in his word, it will give you uh, understanding. Now the minor chord in this section, as we think about God's word as our light, the minor chord is that we are by nature what? In darkness. We are by nature ignorant. We don't want to hear this. Don't tell me I'm ignorant. Don't tell me that I'm in darkness, but that's the case. If you've worked with young children you can see, long enough, you can see that we all go astray. We tend to go astray, all of us. We all, by nature, we tend to love the wrong things. Or we tend to love the right things, but too much. Things become addictions for us. They become uh, bondages and over-fascinations for us, right? We need a reorientation, and that's what we find in this word. We've prayed already in verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now, wondrous is, is kind of gotten weak in modern English. The word here uh, is miraculous, astounding. Uh, and this, of course, is the word that is used for our Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah, that he is the wonderful counselor. I remember the, uh, the Hebrew word, if you'll indulge me, uh, the, word, the Hebrew word for this is Pele. And I think about the, uh, the Brazilian uh, soccer star, Pele. He was just amazing with what he could do with his feet, right? That here, <clears throat> this is a book that will cause you to stand amazed. This is a magic book. This is a book that will drop your jaw if you open yourself to it, if you engage with it, because it shows you this, 
this magic child, this magic baby, the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is wonderful and beautiful and astounding, right? This is his book. And he is the one who said, whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. A human being saying that if you see me, you see God? That's amazing. That's amazing. But that's who he is. That's who he is. And we have uh, an amazing book here, if you'll be open to it. But not only do we have light for our darkness here in this book, we have rescue for our weakness. Secondly, rescue for our weakness. You'll notice in this psalm that many, there are many petitions for life. He says in 149, uh, uh, Give me life, 154. Uh, redeem me, give me life, according to your promise. 156, great is your mercy, O Lord, give me life. 159, how I love your precepts, give me life, according to your steadfast love. Now, why is he, why is he asking for life? He was asking for life just like I was asking for life yesterday morning for my mother. My mother took a fall. I, I, I came in. My, I'm from Princeton, Illinois, small town northwest, north, north, north central Illinois. And I arrived late the night before on my way here. And in the morning she went off to a Bible study and she, she took a slip and she cracked her right hip. And I spent the day with her in the uh, ER before she went off to surgery. And she did not look good. And I was saying, Lord, have mercy on her and give her life. She's uh, not young anymore. And I was worried that she might die. And she, she was worried that she was going to die. She started telling me things about kind of last will and testament things as I'm sitting by the bedside. Right? Lord, give her life. Why would we ask this? Why is the psalmist asking this again and again and again? Give me life. Look at uh, 25. He says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life. That is, he's close to dying. And if you think about it, there's a dust of death, even if you're 25, there's a dust of death over everything that you touch in this life. You paint your house. Ten years later, you've got to paint it again. Everything you touch at some level seems to disintegrate. You invest in something, and it goes awry. You have your hopes, and they go downhill. You put, you put your confidence in another person, and they fail you. There's this... There's this brokenness that's in the world and even in our very bodies. He says in 17, Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Let, uh, 77, Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my life. 88, In your steadfast love give me life. And in 17, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. God in his kindness has given to you the son of his, his heart of hearts. He sent his own son for your sake to suffering, spitting, and shame that you might be received and comforted and taken to himself. He's given you this to give you life. And you find the message of this in this wonderful, uh, wonderful book. But God in His kindness does not simply give you an external salvation, the forgiveness of your, your sins in an outward sense, as wonderful that, as that is, before the divine judgment seat. But God has promised to do an internal work in you to change 
who you are, to make you different, to set you free. <laughs> we see this again and again in this psalm. In 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Internal transformation promise. 20, 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Jesus loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you as you are. He will change what you love, what you seek, where you're oriented, your habits, your whole life. <laughs> Don't resist it. Don't resist it. It's good. It's for you. Right? We read in 28, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. He's asking for, for help there. 29, Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I think I already read that uh, to you. What is the most broad Bible term for rescue? For getting free from all the difficulties that you face. Your guilt. Affliction of all sorts. What's the biggest, widest word? The biggest and the widest word is salvation. That's what salvation means. It means rescue. Yeshua. Yeshua. That's the Hebrew word for salvation. And whose name is that? Yeshua. That's our Lord Jesus' name in Hebrew, right? He is salvation himself. His name is who he is. When the, when the, uh, the, when the angel said his name shall be Yeshua, that was exactly who he was going to be. So we not only find light for our darkness, we not only find rescue for our weakness in the Word through Christ, but we also find reliability for our vulnerability. Thirdly, reliability for our vulnerability. Vulnerability is our wherever it is that we can be wounded. Vulnere is the old Latin expression to wound, or a vulnus is a wound, is a, is a blow, Right? And the, the minor chord in this section is, in this, in this theme that's woven throughout the psalm, is that you are susceptible to being hurt. And I am, ex I am susceptible. We are in danger. We are constantly in danger, even though we don't even think about it. He says in 23, Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. He has, high, he has enemies in high places. Do you have enemies in your life? Do you have people opposed to you? He says in, in 87, he says, They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Again, people are seeking his hurt. When that happens to you and when that happens to me, we're not the first ones. Of course, our Lord Jesus was the most abused of human beings. And people abuse us in small and great ways. The psalmist says, I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. There are many things that cause us to be in danger, whether it's a, a fall, to break our hip, whether it's a cancer, whether it's someone in your workplace that just seems to have it out for you and lies about you and slanders you. What a terrible thing slander is. 
Right? How can you defend yourself against slander? <clears throat> whatever it is, whatever is threatening you, you can find help in God. You can find reliability. The psalmist is being taunted, 42. 42. He's being derided, 51. He's being smeared with lies, 69. Persecuted falsely, 86. He's afflicted, he says that many, many times, 50, 67, 71, many more. There are physical, social threats against him, economic threats. And even as we were singing in our first hymn today, we have moral uh, uh, threats against us. There exists one who is supernatural in intelligence. His name is the Shaitan. And he wants one thing of you. He wants to make you grow cold toward Jesus Christ and to sin against God, to turn you from the Christian faith and to alienate you from the church. That is this tempter's intention for you. And he has demons that will help him who are supernatural and they're a lot more intelligent than we are. He knows your weaknesses. Right? That's, uh, Luther had a very strong sense of the tempter. Very strong sense. How can you find protection? How can you find reliability? The Lord says, or the psalmist says in 114, he says, You are my hiding place and my shield. You are my shield. I hope in your word. You have in Christ protection. Have protection. You have in Christ stability. He's the only thing that's reliable in this shaking world where everything seems to be up for grabs. Again and again, our psalmist is, is, is rejoicing in the reliability and dependability of the Lord's uh, promises. He says in 89, Your word is firmly fixed in heaven. 86, Your commandments are sure. Can you feel that? He's saying that they're dependable. 152, Long I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. 160, Every one of your righteous rules endures. 90, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands. 138, You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, wherever you're feeling vulnerable, wherever you're feeling like your world is shaking, you have in Christ a rock and a foundation. You have in, in God your protection. It's not to say that God will protect you from every trouble and give you just a pain-free life. That's not the promise. And that wouldn't be good for you and me, would it? That wouldn't be good for us. He has his own secret ways that he brings out good things through the difficulties. But yet you have, and only in God, will you find reliability in the face of your vulnerability. Fourthly, we find in God and in his word, hope for our fear. Hope for our fear. He says in verse 43, he said, My hope is in your rules. In 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. 147, I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your word. 
<clears throat> Have you ever had the experience where you're really quite anxious about something, and someone comes to you and they give you a word of assurance? They give you a, a they're they're in a knowledgeable, authoritative position, perhaps, and they say it's going to be all right. And you can feel in your body, you're just like, Psh. have you had that experience? Just the stress just seems to go off you. Maybe as as a child, you're. You, you're concerned about something, and your parent says, it's going to be okay. And you just, psh, your worry about that just dissipates, right? That's what we have in the Word of God. We have something that gives us hope and something that takes away our fears. For many of us, hope, fear is like, it's like it grabs us by the throat and it simply won't let go. It's like a little demon on our shoulder that's always there, just robbing us of our joy, limiting and crushing our lives, that fear, 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 right? Holding us back. Brothers and sisters, when will we hear the word, believe it, and live, begin to live in greater and greater freedom from that, in hope, right? If you believe, you will receive hope here. You will receive hope. Our Lord Jesus promised life and life abundantly right and we can only find it in him and through his word he is the only source of our comfort we read in 50 he says this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life the comfort is connected to the promise read the promise believe the promise and you'll find comfort if you don't believe the promise how are you going to have comfort if you don't know the promise, how are you going to have comfort, right? It's through knowing, embracing, and believing the promise, that's where you get your comfort. And I'm sure you folks are not unacquainted with the Heidelberg Catechism, right? What's the major theme in the Heidelberg Catechism? Comfort. Your only comfort in this life, right, is that you belong to Christ, is that you belong to Christ. We read in 82, he says, my eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? 76. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. 38. 38 confirm your, to your servant your promise that you may be feared. So let's say you're going off to college. You're a high school senior. You're, off, you're going off to college and it costs some absurd amount of money nowadays. I don't know, what is it? $80,000, some expensive thing. And you have in front of you <coughs> a promissory note. You have to sign some paper where it's, you have to, you're, you're actually agreeing to pay back this massive amount of money. That's a scary proposition, right? But you have an Uncle Bob. You have an Uncle Bob. And your Uncle Bob has told you, listen, Sammy, listen, Susie, no matter how large your student loans are when you come to the end of your college experience, I will pay them. And you know your Uncle Bob. You know he's wealthy. You know he can handle it. You know he's favorable. So what, what does that do to you when you've got to put your name on the, on, on the dotted line? And by the way, I'm not speaking about positive about going into debt or I'm not entering into that. I'm just giving you an illustration, right? What would you feel about that when you're going to... You have the anxiety of this debt. You believe his promise and you rest, right? This is what you have in Christ and in the scriptures. If you believe his promises, you will trust. He will see you through this particular anxiety. He will see you through this particular fear, no matter what it is, no matter how big it is. 
He will see you through these things. Right? Trust in his word and move forward in life with confidence. You can have hope through faith in God's promises to you through Christ. This is a beautiful thing. A theme that I don't have time to develop along these lines is the theme of shame and honor. Shame and honor. He's many times here also. He's concerned about shame, and he wants honor by implication. We won't go into that. Please take the time this afternoon, or tonight, or tomorrow, or this week. Take the time to go through this psalm again. Read the whole psalm to yourself. You'll find wonderful things for your soul here. The only way to find true honor and comfort is through faith in Christ and obedience to his commands. The psalmist prays in 80, May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. That's his hope. Last but not least, we find in this word happiness for our hardship. Happiness for our hardship. Are you folks accustomed to three-point sermons? I'm glad I got to rattle your cage with five points here, right? So there's so much here. We could have 20 points. Happiness for our hardship. Where does this psalm begin? Look at verse 1. This psalm begins in the same place that the Psalter as a whole begins. Verse 1 of our psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And how does the Psalter begin? On the same theme. Blessed is the man. You want to have a happy life? This is the way. This is the way. It's in this word, right? This word blessed is the equivalent of what Jesus, how Jesus begins his most famous sermon. His most famous sermon on the mount. How does he, how, what does he begin? Blessed are the, those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Jesus is saying, the psalmist is saying, and our psalmist here is saying, there is a certain happy way. All of our human hearts, we want to be happy. We all want to be happy. That's taken for granted. The question is, where are you looking for your happiness? Where are you looking for your happiness? And the psalmist is saying, find it in God. And find it, you find it here in His Word, which points you to Christ, who, who and who alone can satisfy your soul. In 56, he says, Blessed, this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Blessing is, it comes in connection with the Scriptures. Have you heard the story of Croesus? King Croesus, rich King Croesus of Sardis, right? <clears throat> One day, Solon came to him, the uh, Athenian uh, philosopher and statesman, and Croesus thought he would test him, and he asked him, who is the happiest man in the world? And Solon said, he mentioned some uh, 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 notable Greek-speaking individual, he had an honorable life and a glorious death in battle. And then he said, uh, Croesus said, well, who's the second most happy man in the world? And of course, what is Croesus thinking? It must be me. I have, I have more wealth than anyone. As rich as Croesus, maybe you've heard that expression, right? I, he had armies at his command, 
rich kingdom of Lydia. I mean, he had it all. Anything he could desire, he had. Surely it must be me. But Solon goes on to mention another person who had lots of children, who lived according to Greek virtues and died, again, a glorious death in battle, right? And Solon was saying, don't count anyone happy until they're, until they're finished. And Croesus was very disappointed, right? But, but he found out the hard way when he was older. He lost it all. He actually lost everything that he had, and he had an unhappy uh, ending as well. So what is the way to be happy? Where are we looking for our happiness? If we're like Croesus and we're trusting in our wealth, my word, what happened to your 401k this year? Right? Where are you going to put your hopes for happiness and security? In some individual? That individual may leave you. They may leave you through death. They may turn on you. Right? Even a child. I know this is a sensitive point, but if, if you're a parent, if you're putting all your happiness in your child, my child must turn out a certain way. They must have some characteristic or some success or I cannot be happy. That is an idolatry. To pray for our children our whole life long, even if they go astray, yes. But to have our happiness tied up in that my child will walk a certain way. No, no. We can't control these things, right? The, the psalmist is inviting us to find a happiness that's beyond some outward circumstance, even circumstances of people in our life. The psalmist has, has discovered happiness as a gift which comes to him from God. <clears throat> and the secret, of course, is what? Is that it is God himself who is our happiness because he is the source of all goodness. He is himself all goodness. We read in 68, you are good and do good. That's the verb form there. Teach me your statutes. 65, you have dealt well with your, your, your servant. That's the verb of the, same, uh, of the same Hebrew word here, right? The psalmist has found that God is the source of all delight and of all goodness. And that's why the psalmist can, can wax eloquent about the scriptures, it's, he, he, he finds a delight in the scriptures that's like the, de, the delight that you find in God. Right? He says, I, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. 70, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight. Right? He finds his joy in the scriptures because the scriptures show him God. He's found a transforming treasure in the scriptures. Have you read The Count of Monte Cristo? Dumas' book, The Count of Monte Cristo. In The Count of Monte Cristo, there is a treasure that's transforming. If you haven't read it, I very much encourage it. Right? Edmond Dumas, excuse me, Edmond Dantes, <clears throat> promising young man, happy young man. He ends up through a series of misfortunes, not his own fault. He ends up going to the lowest of the low, and he's a prisoner for many years in a terrible, terrible prison. But he escapes, and he finds this treasure, this treasure that transforms his life completely. And I won't go on any further to spoil the story, but that is what you find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself presents himself as a treasure 
that's hidden in a field. And if you find it, if you know it's there, you'll spend everything you have to buy that field. Because you know that you have this treasure chest here. And that's what we have here in the Word of God, in the Psalms, in the Old Testament. You have a treasure chest. It's worth everything. The Lord Jesus compares himself to a pearl, one great pearl that's worth everything. You can sell your whole house and all your stuff, cash in all your investments, whatever they may be, and get this pearl. Because if you have this, you have everything. That's who Jesus is. He is happiness itself. He is goodness itself. He's the source of all goodness. He's the fulfillment of all longing. You see this theme of longing again and again in this, in this psalm. My soul is consumed, verse 20, with longing, right? He finds his highest joy in the word of God. Lead me in the paths of your commandments. I delight in it, 35. And then he treats the word of God like a chest of treasure, right? He says, more than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. 127, I, re- I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Brothers and sisters, if you knew that you were going to inherit $6 million next year, would you worry about paying the bills at the end of the month? But that's what you have in Christ. You have an assurance that all will be well. It is well with my soul. It is well. If I have Christ, I have everything. If I lack Christ, I lack everything. Do you have Christ? Do you lack Christ? If you lack Christ, today is the day to seek and to find Christ. To have Him is to have everything. Brothers and sisters, here you see this delighting in Scripture. One last verse here. He says, Your testimonies are my heritage forever. This is his inheritance. They are the joy of my heart, he says in 111. We've seen here that because of Christ, in his word, we find light for our darkness. We find rescue for our weakness. We find reliability for our vulnerability. We find hope for our fear. And we find happiness for our hardship. So let me ask in conclusion then, response. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to this? Look at 47. He says, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. He says in 48, I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on them. Our response as we see the loveliness of the word of God, as we see the awesomeness that it's a magic book, it points us to a magic person, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we see his loveliness, what is our response? We will love him. The human heart cannot but respond in love to what it finds lovely. And when we see Christ, we love him. Our hearts are drawn out to him. We value him. And we value him as our great treasure. And this transforms everything else that we're looking at. How kind of God to come to us and to speak to us in human language. I do hope that you'll stay for the Sunday School. We're considering the work of Wycliffe Bible Translators, which now for 80 years has been focused on overcoming cultural and linguistic language barriers that people could have the Word of God. And that's what God has done for you in Christ. Christ is the Word. God has come down to you 
to speak in a way that you can understand using your language, speaking to your heart. And the promises that we have here are not just promises of words on paper. They are promises of the Lord himself. The psalmist says, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. This is the gospel. The gospel is that the Lord gives himself to you as a gift for you to receive with nothing paid but with open arms. The gospel is that God offers you happiness through a connection to Jesus Christ, which is not something that you earn, but something that's given to you as a gift. The gospel is that there is joy for you in the Holy Spirit and a rest in your conscience by faith in what God has said. This is a beautiful thing. You have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and you have all these promises that you can take for yourself. To seek him, to find him, to have him, this is our delight. (laughs) And this is a wonderful, beautiful thing. This is true happiness, and this alone is true happiness. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you, in times past, spoke to our fathers through the prophets in many ways and at many times, but that you have spoken to us in these last days by Christ, your Son, through whom you made the worlds and by whom you sustain the universe. We thank you for him who is beautiful beyond comparison. And we pray that you would open our, the eyes of our understanding that we may see his beauty and that we may see the delightfulness that he is and our hearts might be drawn out to him. Thank you for giving us your word in a language that we can understand. Stir us up to take our delight in that word, we pray. Give us grace, each one of us, even the smallest children among us, to embrace Christ to delight in Christ, to love Christ, and to be transformed by Christ unto a new way of living. O Lord, do not take your hand from us. Whatever dangers, toils, and snares we may have to go through, Lord, work in us this delighting in yourself and give us hope amidst the fears that we have. Give us stability amidst the threats to us. Protect us for those who who would hurt us. Help us, Lord, in all of our vulnerability, we do pray. This day, this week, and this month, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.